and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I am your host, Ray Gerard. This is the program that asks, what, what would St. Paul tell us in America today if he were still actually alive? Wouldn't that be a really interesting thing to know? Uh, and what if we could know it? Uh, so this podcast is designed to answer precisely that question. And we think that we can tell you with a lot of confidence exactly what St. Paul would say because what he said before, what he said in his letters that he wrote to other cities, the Colossians, the people who lived in, uh, I mean, the, the Colossians, the Galatians, the Romans, etc. What he told them is the same thing that he would tell us today because the truth does not change. And St. Saint Paul spoke the inspired truth. Now, if we think that's so, and you know, we're gonna we, we are gonna look at a letter of his as we do each week. Um and uh, and look at a letter for some truth, um, you know, why do we why what are we gonna what are we gonna pick? What are we gonna look at? Uh, what's the reason to look at a particular letter in a particular week? Well, what we always do is re- relate this program to something that's happening in our country today, something that's happening in our country, in our world, and uh, we look at it uh, through the prism of St. Paul's letters and say, hey, is uh, is what we are doing, is what we are saying, is what we are thinking consistent with what St. Paul uh, told us and advised us? And if not, who's right and who's wrong. So what are we going to look at this week? Well, this week there's a story that came actually out of Britain, and it involves a member of parliament. He was a Catholic member of parliament. Uh, He's a very pro-life parliamentarian, a very staunch upholder of his Catholic beliefs, uh, voted in many ways to restrict abortion. He was a supporter of pro-life, the I think the Pro-Life Association of the United Kingdom proclaimed him a champion of life. Anyways, uh, that's all very notable, and that in and of itself is, well, should make him worthy of of mention any particular week. However, the problem is um, he was killed, tragically, and unfortunately that's often enough the reason why people make the news, but uh, he was killed in a very tragic manner. Uh, He was stabbed to death. He was giving uh, some kind of a speech to some of his constituents in a Lutheran church. That's where he happened to be meeting his constituents on this particular day. It was around noon. Uh, it was noon during the day, and uh, a man entered, uh, and a 25-year-old man entered. Apparently, he had been planning this episode for two years or so, he says, and he stabbed him 17 times and stabbed him to death. Uh, This uh, member of parliament, his name is David Ames, he died at the scene uh, after uh, paramedics worked on him for over an hour. Now, the conflicting reports, uh, the timeline's a little bit in doubt. Could have been as much as two hours, but it was at least an hour, and the paramedics were there working on him. And during that time, Apparently, he would, they were going to airlift him, but he was too serious. They thought he was too seriously uh, injured to be airlifted. Um, and uh, so during that time, a Catholic priest showed up, and he was going to administer last rites. And he was denied 
the ability to do that. A Catholic priest attending to someone on the point of death and the police tell him, no. The police, in effect, stand between this man and his priest, his God, uh, at the moment of death. Why would they do that? And is that something? I mean, if they have a good explanation for it, is that something that we should say, well, okay, we understand? Or is it something we should say should never, ever, ever happen again? Where does the truth lie? That's what we're going to be talking about. Our program today, The Sting of Death. And um, in order to look at this through the prism of St. Paul, we're going to examine one of the things that St. Paul wrote. And he says this, This I declare, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised corruptible. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For what is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility, and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is a culture of unbelief. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you might realize that um, the second last line that we just read uh, is not uh, an exact recitation of what St. Paul wrote. He wrote that the power of sin is the law. And uh, if he were alive today writing a letter to us in America, would he not perhaps say the power of sin is a culture of unbelief? At his time, he was preaching people, uh, preaching to people to believe in Christ. Matter of fact, the last line of his, uh, of his uh, letter here, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it is this culture of unbelief, is it not? that precipitated a denial by the police for this priest to come and administer last rites. If there was a firm conviction of belief in these um, secular authorities that there is an afterlife, that the door to the afterlife was opened for all by Christ on the cross, that a priest... Um, can help somebody on his journey after this life to become uh, united or to find his way toward Christ, would anybody ever stop a priest from administering last rites? Someone is at the point of death. If you think, well, all there is in this life is this life here on earth, and the most important thing in the world is to 
try to allow the paramedics a free hand and to, uh, you know, give them the opportunity to have the uninvited, you know, uh, uninvited access uh, to this, this person who's been injured. And you think that is the most important thing. Then sure, you know, why not deny a priest the ability to visit somebody at the point of death? But I ask you, what if it was you? And what if it was you and you're not even sure whether or not there is a God? What if you're not even sure that there is a, a Christ? But maybe. And, you know, you, you're, you're Catholic. Uh, you were, your parents were Catholic. You were raised Catholic. Maybe, but maybe you don't believe at this point. But maybe there's a chance that it's all true. And whether you know, and if there's a priest there who could come and perform last rites, and it could help seal your fate, so that forevermore you might be able to be united with Christ instead of to be separated from Christ. Who would? What would you want? If you were conscious, would you scream to the priest? I know I would. Would you scream to the police? Let this man through. Because what happens in last rites? What does a priest do? One of the things they do is they bring what's called viaticum, the Eucharist. Viaticum, food for the journey. Um, in years gone by, in centuries gone by, we had a very distinct notion. People had a very distinct notion that... Um, when someone died, the journey just began. That this was not all there was. Um, and so to deny a priest the ability to bring Christ, if um, you know, Christ, Christ waits for all of us. And you know, the, the, the thing that determines our fate is whether we choose uh, Christ or we choose not to. It is said, that no one goes to hell unless they choose hell. If at that last moment we have a choice between Christ or the alternative, um, and someone could give us the real body, blood, soul, and divinity, as Catholics, Catholics believe the Eucharist is, if someone could give us the body, blood, soul, and divinity, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, how would it be that we would not be accompanied on our journey by Christ himself? He said, I am the bread of life. The bread of life itself. Whoever, uh, whoever does not you know, partake of, of my flesh does not have life within them. Um, wouldn't that be so very important? That it would be the most important thing. What happens in this, our time on this earth is but just what? a speck of dust in comparison to eternity. Um, and if, you know, what happens at the moment of our death is hugely important to what happens to us for the rest of eternity, how would you ever deny a priest access? Um, uh, every Hail Mary that, you know, is said by Catholics, on a, whenever you say the rosary, you're going to be saying the Hail Mary 50 times. Uh, the last part of the Hail Mary, and pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Why is it so important to be prayed for at the moment of death? 
So this is what we're going to uh, look into a little bit more, a little bit more deeply, and hopefully uh, at the end of it, maybe we'll have a little bit more of an understanding, a little bit more of an appreciation for exactly what happens during uh, uh, the administration of last rites and why, why it's important. So first off, um, exactly what happened in Britain. So uh, as I said, David, uh, Sir David Ames was, was stabbed. And there was a Catholic priest. His name was Father Jeffrey Walnaw. He was the pastor of St. Peter's Catholic Church in Eastwood. It was close by. Um, and he appeared at the scene and requested permission to go in. He told there was a police officer outside, and he told the police officer why he was there. And the police officer radioed to his superiors and asked, you know, is this man allowed in? And uh, the response came back that he was not. The priest couldn't, I, I, I'm surmising here, but I, I imagine the priest was somewhat incredulous. But anyways, he led, um, he led a, a public uh, uh, session of prayer outside this Lutheran church. He, had, he said later, his attitude was, if I can't go in, then Our Lady has to go in. He led people in praying the rosary. And if he cannot go in, if he is the, um, the servant of, of Christ, um, the representation of Christ on earth, uh, the man who's in persona Christi, if he could not go in, then he prayed to Our Lady to intercede um, and, uh, and to go in for him. That's all he could do. That's all he could do. The police, uh, for their uh, for their part, uh, tried to explain later why they decided as they did. Uh, the Essex police stressed that it was, quote, of the utmost importance that we preserve the integrity of a crime scene and allow emergency services to tend to those in need. Preserve the integrity of a crime scene. Preserve the integrity of a crime scene. Um, what about the man's soul? What about the man's very soul? He's been victimized. He's been attacked, and uh, he was attacked fatally. That's victim enough. Now you're going to, on top of everything else, victimize him a second time by jeopardizing the fate of his very soul? Now, with the, the all-merciful God that we know Christ is, one has to imagine that knowing this and knowing it was not the fault of, of Mr. Ames or the priest, that you know the, the fate of, of Mr. Ames's soul is going to be well taken care of, uh, that Christ is not going to allow something like this uh, to interfere. Um, but that's not the important part. The important part is what are people in our society thinking when they decide that the most important thing is the preservation of a crime scene? They must have no conception of the man's soul. They must have no belief in the fact that somebody has an eternal soul, that the government now is deciding. This is, in effect, what took place. The government is deciding this man doesn't have a soul. Well, what if the government is wrong and Mr. Ames is right? Who are they to decide 
what religious beliefs are right and are not right, what religious beliefs should be given some credence and which ones not. The preservation of a crime scene is the most important thing. And a, the assistance to be given to someone's journey to, into eternity, um, it's, it's not even to be, it's not even to be, uh, to be considered. How arrogant, how cold, um, how unfeeling. If it was me and there was a choice of perhaps dying, uh, if I had a choice between having medical authorities attend to me and a priest, and the choice was if the medical authorities came, you know, came there's a, a better than odd chance uh, that I'll survive. But maybe not. I might still die, but there's a good chance that I might survive. Uh, or um, I have a priest administer last rites to me, and I could only choose one. The choice would be, it wouldn't even take me half a second. Would not take half a second. Um, to have a priest come and administer last rites um, and... Uh, administer the Eucharist, hear my confession, uh, pray over me. Um, I mean, this is uh, this is the big time, folks. This is for eternity. This is for all the marbles. Um, no, it wouldn't. It's not even a question. So by denying the priest access, they are deciding. I mean, this this is exactly what took place. They are deciding the man did not have a soul, because if they thought that he did. They would never have denied this man a priest at his moment of death. Um, their explanations um, were not limited to just that. They also said, quote, A cordon is put in place to secure and prevent contamination of the area. Access into a scene is at the discretion of the investigating officers. So preserving the crime scene is important, but there is discretion. So that discretion in this particular case was exercised by the commanding officers at the scene to say that there should be no access. Um, they continued, the explanation continued, uh, quote, this is a fundamental part of any investigation to ensure the best possible chance of securing justice for any victim and their family. So if it was you, again, if it was you, um, and maybe the chances of, of your soul going to heaven and, and, and being with Jesus for eternity would be aided by having last rites. What are you going to care about whether, you know, what the, what the, what the course of some prosecution for your murderer uh, takes? Are you really going to be concerned with that? Well, that's okay. You know, if I, if I get separated from Christ for eternity, maybe I, I'm going to end up in hell. Uh, but at least they prosecuted my murderer. I mean, the explanation did not say we made a mistake. We will never do this again. The officers at the scene decided the man did not have a soul that needed uh, consideration to be given to it. And then the authorities, even after that, the you know other authorities involved with the Essex Police Department after that decided the same thing because they didn't say 
we're sorry, and it will never happen again. Uh, the uh, killer, by the way, um, has uh, ties. A prosecutor told the Westminster Magistrates Court that um, the uh, suspect, his name is Ali Harbi Ali, uh, considered himself uh, an affiliate of the Islamic State, and they were investigated as an ongoing uh, terrorist investigation. So perhaps the murderer. Uh, committed his act for religious reasons, but the assistance, the religious assistance that could have been given to the person at that moment of death, um, you know, that was not to be allowed. So going back, I mean, what would, <laughs> what would St. Paul say in this instance? Would not he say, behold, I tell you a mystery that we will all be changed. The dead will be raised. There is an afterlife. But that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility. Must. How do you do that? Do you not do that by receiving the Eucharist, confessing your sins, and having a priest pray? over you at the moment of death. Do you not really, I mean, if we're not judging people's religious beliefs, and we're going to take them at face value, just to give respect to everybody, you know, whatever your religious beliefs are, we're going to respect them. Well, then if you're going to respect the beliefs of a Catholic, you're going to respect the fact that they believe that the Eucharist is Christ himself that uh, the sacrament of reconciliation forgives somebody all of the sins during their life. St. Paul said, the sting of death is sin. The forgiveness of sin is where someone clothes themselves with incorruptibility. This reading from Paul speaks exactly to the importance of being able to receive the last rites. Um, and then he, he closes his letter, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For a Catholic, the Eucharist is our Lord Jesus Christ. At the point of death, murdered, deprived of his life in this world, but nonetheless being able to uh, enjoy a victory through being united with Jesus Christ for eternity. That's what Mr. Amess, that's what the Catholic faith teaches could happen to Mr. Amess. And if he could be assisted with that by receiving the last rites, who is anybody on this planet to deny him that? You know, maybe it's it's right. Maybe it's right for the authorities to decide what they decided. I mean, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, we want to respect people's beliefs. Um, if you want to believe these things, you're a Catholic, okay, fine. But you know what? I mean, when push comes to shove, we've got a job to do. We've got to preserve the crime scene. We've got to do what we've got to do. You know, I mean, you can have your beliefs, but you can have them, you know, when it, when it doesn't really 
you know, get in the way of, of us performing our public function. Um, you know, there's there's got to be a little a little priority here, and and we've got to take care of the crime scene. We've got to we've got to be able to do our job. Um, and you know, I don't know. Maybe the priest can pray over you afterwards, etc. I mean, you know, that, I mean that that's 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 reasonable, isn't it? It's reasonable if what St. Paul said is not true. If he spoke truth, then the actions of the police are terribly unreasonable. Say a little story. There's a priest by the name of Father Finn, and in 1896, he wrote a book uh, called Mostly Boys. He tells a story. He says that I was in my first sleep, one of the doorbell awakened me, whereupon I sprang from my bed, and after a few hurried preparations, hastened to throw open the door. It was a bitter cold night in January, and the moon without threw its pale light over the wan, spectral, snow-covered landscape. I guess he's exercising a little literary license. Anyways, uh, the sharp gust that swept into the hall as I opened the door made me pity the delicate-looking child who stood at the threshold. Her hair gleamed with a strange and rare effect in the moonlight. Long golden hair then fell in graceful ripples about her shoulders. She was lightly dressed, this little child, as she stood gazing straight and frankly into my eyes, with an expression at once so beautiful and calm and earnest that I shall never forget it. Her face was very pale, her complexion of the fairest. The radiancy about her seemed to glow in some weird yet indescribable fashion upon her every feature. These details I had not fairly taken in when she addressed me. Father, can you come with me at once? My mother is dying and she is in trouble. Come inside, my little girl, I said, and warm yourself. You must be half frozen. Indeed, Father, I am not in the least cold. I had thrown on my coat and hat as she made uh, as she made answer. Your mother's name, my child? Catherine Morgan. Father, she's a widow and has lived like a saint. And now that she's dying, she's in awful trouble. She has taken, was taken sick about a few hours ago. Where does she live? Two miles from here, Father, on the border of the Great Swamp. She's a stranger in these parts and alone. I know the way perfectly. You need not be afraid of getting lost. A few minutes later, we were tramping through the snow, or that I was tramping, for the child beside me moved with so light and tender a step that had there been flowers instead of snowflakes beneath our feet, I do not think a single petal would have been crushed under the airy fall of her fairy feet. Her hand was in mine with a confiding clasp of childhood. Her face, for all the trouble that was at home, wore a gravely serene air, such as is seldom seen in years of sprightly, youthful innocence. How beautiful she looked. More like a creature fresh from the perfect handiwork of God than one who walked in the valley of sin, sorrow, trouble, and death. Locked upon her bosom, I observed a golden locket fashioned in a heart shape. She noticed my glance, and with a quick movement of her fingers, released the locket and handed it to me. It's a heart, I said. Read what's on it, Father. I can't, my little friend. My eyes are very good, but are not equal to making out reading on gold lockets by moonlight. 
Just let me hold it for you, Father. Now look. How this child contrived, I cannot say. But certain it is that at once, as she held the locket at a certain angle, there stood out clearly, embossed upon its surface, the legend. Cease. The heart of Jesus is with me. Mama placed that upon my bosom one year ago when I was very sick, Father. And kissing the locket, the child restored it to its place. We went on for a time in silence. I carried the blessed sacrament with me. And young as she was, the girl seemed to appreciate the fact. Whenever I glanced at her, I observed her lips moving as in prayer. And her eyes seemed, in very truth, fixed upon the place where rested in his sacramental veil, the master of life and death. Suddenly the girl's hand touched my sleeve, oh, so gently. This is the place, Father, she said in soft tones that thrilled me as they broke upon the stillness. And she pointed to a little hut standing back in the dim shadows of three pine trees. I pushed open the door, which hung loosely upon its hinges, and turned to wait her entrance. She was gone. Somewhat startled, I was peering out into the pallid night when a groan called me to the bedside of the dying woman. A glance told me there was no time to lose. The woman lying in that room had hardly reached middle life, but the hand of death had touched her brow, upon which stood the drops of sweat, and in her face I read a great trouble. I was at her side in an instant, and, God be thanked for it, soon calmed and quieted the poor creature. She made her confession, and in sentiments of faith and love such as I have rarely seen, received the last sacraments of the church. Standing beside her, I suggested those little prayers and devices so sweet and consoling at the dread hour. I noticed as the time passed on that her eyes frequently turned toward a little box at the farther end of the room. Shall I bring you that box, I asked. She nodded assent. And placing it beside her, she opened it with trembling hands and took out the dress of a child. A little daughter's dress, I said, she whispered, and there was love in her tones. My darling Edith's. I know her, I continued. She brought me here, you know. I stopped short and caught my breath. The woman half rose in her bed. She looked at me in wonder that cannot be expressed. I, no less amazed, was staring at a golden oval locket fastened to the bosom of the child's dress, which the woman was holding in her hands. Madam, I cried, in the name of God, tell me, where is your daughter? Whose is that locket? The locket is Edith's. I placed it here on the bosom of her dress when my little girl lay dying a year ago. The last thing my darling did was to hold this locket to her lips and say, Cease, the heart of Jesus is with me. She died a year ago. Then the mother's face grew very sweet and very radiant. Still holding the locket in her hands, she fixed her eyes straight before her. Edith, my dear Edith, we are at last to be united in the sacred heart. I see you, my darling. Cease, the heart of Jesus is with me. Her voice faded with the last syllable into silence. She and Edith were again united. 
That's the la- those are the last rites. She made a confession. She made a confession. She received the Eucharist. The priest prayed for her, and uh, she passed into the next life with a vision of her daughter who had died. Oh, she passed in the next life speaking to her daughter who had died a year ago, a daughter who had accompanied the priest to his mother's bedside. Because being in a hut back in the woods, being new to the air and not knowing anybody, she would have died alone. If not, this messenger from the next life did not intercede and guide the priest there. Is there a next life? I mean, <laughs> is there a next life? Do you believe this story? Did the priest make it up? Um, you know what? Uh, what are it, it, you know? It's good to perhaps recall or understand what is said during the last rites. Okay, we understand that um, that the Eucharist is brought. A viaticum is, is given. Uh, we understand that a person confesses all of the sins during their life. You can't be united with God in a state of sin. God is pure. God is perfect. Um, it's you know like combining matter and antimatter. Um, you know, positive and a negative. Uh, they're going to repel. Um, no, you have to be uh, cleansed of sin. You have to be pure. Um, and if you are, what joy, what joy would there be? Um, so confession, reconciliation, it's, uh, it's important. And then the priest will pray for the dying person. And he will say, um, he will say this, for example, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, may all power of the devil become extinct in thee, through the laying on of my hand and through the invocation of the glorious and blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, of St. Joseph, her illustrious spouse, and of all the holy angels, archangels, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, confessors, virgins, and all the other saints. Amen. What a powerful, powerful prayer. May all the power of the devil become extinct in thee. If at the moment of death you're going to either heaven or hell, to have a priest giving you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and in persona Christi, laying hands on you and saying, may all the power of the devil become extinct in thee. If there's any reality to this, if there's any reality to God, if there's any reality to the devil, that prayer is huge. Um... A prayer coming from a priest who is acting in persona Christi, um, who receives his authority from Christ through the apostles and everybody that has succeeded down through the ages from the apostles. Um, what a powerful prayer. And if you believe in these things, would you not want somebody appointed by Christ to be his representative on earth to say that prayer over you. At the moment of death, is not the fear of hell and the devil very real? Um, or is this all just foolishness? There's a uh, sergeant. His name is Robert Bartlett. 
Um, I met Robert Bartlett over the telephone once. I, I interviewed him. Uh, I interviewed him myself. Uh, and he has a very dramatic story. On May, th- May 3, 2005, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Robert Bartlett was in a vehicle traveling down a road just outside of Baghdad when it was hit by a remotely activated roadside explosive. Shortly afterward, Sergeant Bartlett was at an aid station awaiting a helicopter. He was suffering from head injuries that would later require more than 40 surgeries, a collapsed lung, and severe internal bleeding. That was when he died. The first time. He was resuscitated only to die a second and third time before eventually surviving. It was during the time after his second death episode that he found himself kneeling on a marble-like landing. In front of him, everything was black, white, and gray. Directly in front of him were stairs that led down into a pool. In the pool were pillars. To his immediate right and his immediate left were two pillars that had fallen over about half of the way up. The rest of the pillars were lying in the pool. As he gazed out, there was nothing around, forever. It was like two places at once, very far away and very close up. As soon as he looked at the pool, he saw a drip coming from nowhere and coming from everywhere. It was dripping into the pool. He subsequently realized that these drops were the blood of Christ raining down for the sins, for his sins, and the sins of all men. He also realized that the first two fallen pillars represented his unholiness. He had only in the last couple of years begun going to Mass, but had not made, had never made, his first confession. Nor had he experienced confirmation. He understood that when we receive Christ, we are his temple. He had been receiving Christ in the Eucharist at Mass, but had never made a confession. And now he understood at this moment where everything was so much more dramatically real. He understood deeply that when we receive Christ, we are his temple. We are the cup in which we receive him. To keep the inside of the cup clean, to keep our soul clean, we must go to confession. Sergeant Bartlett had not done that. And... uh, He had not done a good job of caring for his temple up to that time. As he looked to his left, Sergeant Bartlett then saw a creature in the form of a dragon with claws and a tail. It was perched on a pillar, but leapt down and began clawing at him. He sensed how evil the devil is, how incapable of love he is, incapable of compassion, incapable of mercy. The edge of hell was near. The pool was, in fact, the beginning of purgatory. There, this place near both of them was where people choose one way or the other. He was scared like a child and begged God to take him out of there. Then suddenly he was out and felt an all-enveloping love come over him. He was now in the presence of God. Sergeant Bartlett subsequently returned to this life with a willingness to tell his story to all who would listen. He now understands that reconciliation 
and Holy Communion in the light of the direct and penetratingly powerful experience he once had. It is our Lord whom we receive. He understood this now. He wanted to share this, this message, this knowledge, this awareness with all people. It's the same message given to us by St. Paul. The same thing that St. Paul was trying to tell us. We must, we must ask for forgiveness of our sins. Christ will grant us mercy, but we have to ask. At that moment, there he is, choosing one way or another. And, you know, there's purgatory right in front of him. Everything is black, white, and gray. And there's also hell and the devil, who is very, very real. This is what he experienced between the time he was dead and when he came back to life. Um, well, maybe it was just, you know, eh, it was just his imagination. Nothing really happened. It's all maybe just some fanciful uh, figment of his imagination. It's possible. Maybe David Ames might choose to believe it's all true. And if perhaps Mr. Ames was at that same point and he was on some marble landing and there was hell in front of him, there was purgatory in front of him, and somebody could come to him with the body of Christ to help him on his journey, to help him decide which way to go. If somebody was there to confess, somebody was there so that he could confess all his sins, all those sins for which he was now perhaps, um, you know, going to uh, going to take with him. Um, but then that person is pulled away and prevented from doing it. What do you think he would? What do you think he would say if he was able to survive such a near-death experience? Or take, for example, uh, a child of an Episcopalian mister, uh, minister. There's another story, story of a girl named Lena. This occurred in Philadelphia in 1875, and Lena was nine years old. Uh, her family hired uh, a servant girl to attend to her. The servant girl was an Irish Catholic, um, but they had hoped that they were going to convert this uh, servant girl uh, to the Episcopalian faith. Anyways, the, the reason why they allowed her to take care of their daughter is uh, this Irish girl uh, never went to church um, and had no, quote, popish, close quote, emblem or book. It was quite indifferent to religion. Anyways, one afternoon when this girl was uh, taking care of Lena, um, she felt an inclination to go to church for the first time in years. So she took Lena there. And on that day, a benediction was taking place. That's where the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, is exposed. Afterwards, Lena wanted to go back. Her parents did not allow it and fired the servant girl. Then, um, shortly after that, um, Lena became grievously ill. They summoned a doctor, but he could find nothing wrong with the child. Um, the um, doctor demanded to know how this strange illness began. And the parents told him, that uh, it really began with going to this benediction and then, you know, not being allowed to go back. 
The doctor insisted at once that they summon a Catholic priest. Lena was told nothing about a priest being called. The priest was Father John Dunn. He carried a sacred host and a small vessel hanging from his neck, as was customary with many priests then. As he entered her room, remember now, she hadn't been told about his coming. As he entered her room, she, and even if he had, she had been told, she probably wouldn't even know that a priest would customarily at that time carry uh, the Eucharist. But anyways, as he entered her room, she sprang up in bed and exclaimed, You have brought my Lord. She said, how would, you know, this girl has no training in the Catholic faith. She springs up in bed and exclaims, you have brought my Lord. She then cried, I wouldn't go without him. As the priest tried to comfort her, she put her little hand on his breast, reaching in a way to be closer to her Lord. In response, during the priest's gentle questions, during his administration to her of last rites, she revealed an understanding. It was not to be expected. Well, of course, she's only nine plus. She's not Catholic. After saying an act of contrition for her sins, she was given the Eucharist. With a smile, she sank back on her pillow and fled to our Lord. She died. How does this happen? How does she say the things that she says? How does that happen to a little girl? Um, you know, maybe we're not supposed to look at these stories. Um, you know, maybe, you know, you can look at things that we can't explain, miraculous events, and simply say, you know, with with a passing, with a hand passing over them. Now, you know, that that's just all. You know, that there there are explanations for all this stuff. They're figments of people's imaginations. You know, we don't need to be bothered with any of these things. We don't need to look into these stories or ask ourselves whether or not they could be true. But what if they are? Because if they are then St. Paul spoke the truth that we must, that we will not die, that there is another life, that the victory is ours through Jesus Christ, that death holds no sting for us, but that we must clothe ourselves with incorruptibility. We must confess our sins. We must actually receive the bread of life that, that Christ himself spoke about to have life in the next life, to have life eternal. That's the life that he was talking about, of course, when he said that he was the bread of life because then the final victory, we have the victory then in Christ. That would explain everything. That would explain why Lena would jump up in bed. I mean, she goes to a benediction service. The Eucharist is exhibited for adoration. She knows nothing about this. Um, the, the the Irish servant girl who brought her there hadn't gone to church in years. She wasn't devout. Um, was it known? Was this an act of uh, Lena's guardian angel? Was it known to God that she was going to die soon? Well, I mean, and that that God inspired 
this servant girl to just simply go to church this one day because the new Lena's death was coming. Um, nah, it's it's just a coincidence. Um, uh, you know, and you know there are there are many more stories about this sort of thing. Um, one of the more interesting ones was recounted in a book entitled Healing Through the Mass by Father Robert DeGrandis. Um, and he tells a story about how, uh, well, actually, well, he tells a story about how NASA was doing some experiments with a special type of camera that could see the energy levels in the human body. This is then seen on a monitor. This energy shows up as an aura around the body. NASA's interest in the experiment was to investigate the effects of space travel on astronauts in orbit. Experimenting in a hospital, they discovered that when a person is dying, the ore around the body is thinner and gets thinner and thinner until the person dies. Uh, the scientist carrying out this investigation in the hospital and his associate uh, were behind a two-way mirror. And they could uh, see, um, and as they were observing one person at the point of death, they could see with their camera another man coming into the room with light coming from his pocket. Then the man took the object from his pocket and did something so that the camera, so that in the camera the whole room was filled with light, uh, and with their camera they could no longer see what was happening. It was blinding. They ran to the room to see what was causing so much light. They discovered that the dying man was being given holy communion. He was receiving last rites. Afterwards, with their camera, they could see that the ore around him was brighter. Um, the scientist, although he was in his 50s at the time, decided afterwards to become a priest. And you know what? There are more stories like that. What if they're all true? What if there is a Christ? What if there is an afterlife? What if... Um, a priest can confess, uh, can receive a confession and forgive someone of their sins and send them on their way. What if the Eucharist is real? Don't get me started on that. I'll go for the next 10 hours. Um, and what if you're at the point of death and you could receive Christ himself to help accompany you on the journey? And what if somebody said, no, you can't? Uh, this should never happen again. Uh, there's an outcry in Britain. Uh, people have proposed a law to make it a law that this will never happen again. I don't know that that law um, has been processed yet or what the status of that is. Hopefully uh, it will succeed, that effort will succeed, but uh, that's to be seen. But anyways, um, if we listen to St. Paul, um, and we believed what he tells us. There'd be no need for a law because it happened in the first place. Well, that's, uh, that's our program for today. Uh, we hope this has been a little provocative, a little interesting. Uh, and we hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll uh, join us again. And until the next time, God bless. <laughs>